Okay, so you guys remember we've been talking about the Apostle Paul because we've been going through the book of Acts in the Bible. Well, remember how the Apostle Paul went lots of places. Now he's coming to the city of Jerusalem. And he comes to the city of Jerusalem, but do you know what? Do you know that Paul was a preacher of the gospel? He was. And do you know that some people loved him? But do you know that some people did not love him? Isn't that terrible? Do you think, as we live our life, do you think that everyone all the time is going to like us? Or do you think sometimes people are not going to like us? What do you think? People aren't always going to like us. We want everyone to like us, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But for Paul, there were a lot of people who did not like him. And the reason they didn't like him was because he told the truth. And he preached the gospel. And they didn't always like what Paul said. So that's kind of where our story is today. So I'm going to kind of give you the the end, and I'm going to go back and talk more about how we get to this end uh, today after we visit here. But Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he there's a bunch of people, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people there, because it was the time of year when all of the Jews came to Jerusalem for a feast called Pentecost. And they would come from all over the world. So there were lots and lots and lots of people there. And when Paul goes there, he is going to address all the people. And as he begins to tell them what God had been doing in his life and how God had been using him, they were listening. But he came to a point, and here's what he says. He said, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. He said, they know I used to be just like them. And when Stephen was martyred, I was even standing there consenting to his death, guarding the clothes of those who were throwing rocks at him. That's what they did to Stephen. And it says they listened to him until... I'm sorry, it says he was standing there as they were doing that. In verse 21, it says, then he said to me, he's telling them what the Lord said to him. Then he said to me, depart from here and I will send you far from here here to the Gentiles. That's a big word that just means a big people group. So he said, I'm going to send you to all the people in the world and you're going to preach the gospel to them. Paul was a Jew, but Jesus told him, I'm not going to send you to your people. I'm going to send you to the rest of the world. And the Bible says that when the people listening to Paul heard this word, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. They didn't just like Paul. They wanted Paul to go away. In fact, they wanted Paul to die because they did not like what he said. So I want to ask you all a question. We all like it when people like us, right? When we get along with our friends and we play and we don't fuss and we don't fight. And I bet your parents tell you that a lot of times. Don't fuss and fight. Get along together. Share your toys. Right? Do they tell you that? They do. And sometimes we don't always share or maybe sometimes we don't always get along. But that just happens with friends or it happens with brothers or sisters. But this was a little bit different. These people weren't just mad at Paul because they had a disagreement about something. They were so angry at Paul that they literally did not want Paul to even live anymore. Now, you can imagine, we all want people to like us, right? So should we just do whatever people want so that people will like us? Should we? Why not? So if God tells us to do one thing, but people want us to do another thing, 
And they say, I'll like you, and I'll accept you, and I'll be your friend if you do what I want you to do. And you say, but I can't do that because it's not what God wants me to do. We have to make a choice then. Are we going to do what God wants us to do? Or are we going to do what people want us to do? And what, that's right. We do what God wants us to do. So even if that means people we were friends with don't want to be our friends anymore. So that's kind of what happened to Paul. Those people said, we don't want to be your friend anymore. In fact, it's even worse than that. We want you to go away and never come back. So sometimes we have to make a choice. Are we going to please God or are we going to please the people around us? And what should we always do? Who should we always choose to please? God. Well, what if all my friends say, I'm never going to be your friend again. I'm never going to play with you again. I'm never going to let you use my toys or, or come over to your house. Or you can't come to my house. Should we obey God or should we please our friends? Yes, we should obey God. And Paul, that's what Paul did. He obeyed God. And do you know, it was really hard on him because some really hard things happened to him in his obedience to God. But do you know what God promises us? If we do the hard things, God has great things in store for us. So it's always worth doing the hard things when we're obeying God because God will always have greater things for us. Whatever we have to give up to obey God, even if it means we have to give up our friends or our relationships, God always has greater things for us when we obey him. Do you believe that? You believe that? You believe that? You believe that? It's true. Yes, yes. So no matter what, no matter what people say, no matter what people threaten you with, no matter, no matter what, obey God. That's what your parents want you to do, right? They want you to obey God. They want you to love God with all your heart. So do that. Love God with all your heart. Obey God. Follow God even when people want you to do different things, okay? So we're going to learn some more about Paul and his following God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these children. I thank you that they have ears to hear your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that they are not too young to learn and they're not too young to know. And they know what it means to obey God and they know what it means to follow God and they know what it means to love God. And I pray, God, that you would give them a heart a bigger heart, a greater heart to love you, that they would love you with all their heart and all their strength, with all their might and all their mind, that they would love you, God, more than anyone or anything else. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll see you all later, okay? Don't go away. Just go to your seat. All right. Well, that was for the young. Now it's for the young at heart. Acts chapter 21. So we're making our way. We're, uh, we're going to cover a big chunk of scripture today. We're not going to read it all. So... We're in Acts chapter 21, and we took a little bit of a step back last week when we looked at Paul talking to the elders uh, from Ephesus, and we talked about shepherds and shepherding. Um, here in Acts chapter 21, um, I'll read the text in just a moment, but I want to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch because we're not going to read all of it. So we're going to pick up in verse 26 of chapter 21, but I want to kind of tell you where we're at. So, so Paul, remember, he's on his missionary journey, and he's got to get to Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost. So he sails across the Aegean Sea. He bypasses Ephesus because he spent three years there, and he didn't have time to go to Ephesus and, and, and visit with everyone. So he goes to this place called Miletus. 
And he sends word that the Ephesian elders would come there and he meets with those elders and he charges those elders and he tells them, I warned you day and night with tears for three years that savage wolves are going to come and men are going to rise up within, from within your own ranks. Uh, and, and this is the job of an elder. The job of an elder is to protect the flock. And so he leaves there and then he sails down to Caesarea. And then he, he meets some other pilgrims there, some other Jews. And they're all going to Jerusalem uh, for the feast. This is where Paul, Paul wants to keep the feast. And so from Caesarea, he joins some other disciples and they, they come to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, James, uh, it, the brother of Christ, is the head of the church there. He's the, the, the one that Paul, it says, Paul encounters him and the brethren. It says the brethren gladly received Paul and the other disciples with him. And then Paul reports all that God had done through his ministry to the Gentiles and it says in the scripture that, that when the Jerusalem elders heard Paul's report, they rejoiced greatly uh, because of the things that God had done through Paul uh, in his ministry. And then they report to Paul that in Jerusalem, myriads of Jews are, believe and are zealous for the law. That's the way they describe it to Paul. Myriads of Jews believe and they are zealous for the law. Now, the way we need to understand this, it might sound kind of funny because Paul spends a lot of time, and we're going through the book of Romans on Wednesday nights where Paul is, writes this very lengthy epistle uh, laying out the doctrines of God and the doctrines of salvation, teaching that we're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So it might sound kind of strange that they're rejoicing that the Jews are zealous for the law, but, but you need to kind of remember Jewish history. So uh, as the Jews, and you go back in the Old Testament, and you see this was the problem with the Jews. God had given them the law, and they would depart from the law, and they would disobey God, and then God would send judgment, and then they would repent and come back to God and keep the law, and they'd do that for a few years, a few decades, and then they'll sink back into sin and forsake the law. And so part of what is meant here when they're saying that the Jews believe and are zealous for the law, it was a report that the Jews were walking in obedience to God. Uh, and then they inform Paul that the report has come to them in Jerusalem by other Jews that Paul is teaching the Jews that live among the Gentiles or the Jews that live in the dispersion. So remember Jewish history, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks. The Jews were dispersed throughout the known world then. And not all Jews, when the captivity in Babylon was over, went back to Jerusalem. Not all Jews, many of them stayed where they were. But when it was feast time, the obedient Jews would come back to Jerusalem three times a year to keep the feast. This is what's happening here. And those Jews that lived in Asia, remember, we saw, we, we read in the book of Acts where Paul stayed there. It says all Asia heard the gospel, but there was a great uh, uproar in, in Ephesus because the gospel had disrupted the, the, the trade of those men who made idols for for pagan worship, the, the, the temple of Diana was there and the craftsmen said, we got to get rid of this guy, Paul, and these Christians because they're bankrupting us. They're ruining our trade. Nobody is buying our idols anymore because they're all turning to Christianity and they don't believe in idolatry. And so in Asia, the Jews there who didn't like the message of the gospel kind of teamed up with those pagans to run Paul and his people out of town and uh, if you remember, Paul, they took him out of town and left him for dead. They stoned him. They, they left him there thinking he was dead, but God raised him up, and he goes back in the city, and then he leaves, and he carries on his missionary journey. Well, uh, the report had come back to Jerusalem that this Paul is teaching the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Uh, and so the, the leaders of the church say, look, all the assembly is here. In other words, all the people of God are here. All these Jews 
are saying these things about you, they're here and they're going to find out that you too are here and they're going to want to all come together and hear what you have to say about this. And they said, based on what they believe, you need to prove to them that you are an observant Jew. So what they did is they instructed Paul to help four men who had taken a Nazarite vow, uh, basically to pay the things, pay for the things that they needed to take to the priest to fulfill their vow. Paul, they said, take these guys, provide for them, and then go through the purification ritual with them, and then the multitude would see that you are sympathetic to those Jews keeping the law and that you are, uh, that you're an observant Jew. So Paul does this not in contradiction to the gospel, but in keeping with the principle consistent in his ministry that he writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 19 and 20. This is where Paul says, uh, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews to those who are under the law I, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. Um, so Paul did this for the sake of the gospel that he might win these Jews to Christ. Paul did all of this, but there were still those who did not care about that. They were opposed to Christ. They were opposed to Paul. And they were most especially opposed to the gospel going to the Gentiles. So that kind of brings us up to where we are at. Acts chapter 21 Beginning of verse 26. So remember, they said, take these guys, pay for their stuff so that they can fulfill their vows. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, that is against the Jews, against the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He actually did not do that. Verse 30, and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now, for the rest of chapter 21 and into chapter 22, Paul is uh, mobbed by this crowd, and then he is eventually rescued by the Roman soldiers, and he is in custody uh, of the Roman soldiers. And, and he is given permission to share his testimony. So while Paul is being mobbed, he's rescued by Roman soldiers. They see the commotion. They run down the stairs. They violently pull Paul out, and they begin to carry Paul away to find out what crime he's committed. And Paul speaks to the commander in Greek. And the commander is like, whoa, you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul says, no, I'm Saul of Tarsus, uh, a, a citizen of no mean city. Now, the commander doesn't quite catch it there, but what Paul is saying, no, I'm Saul of Tarsus, a citizen of Rome. And uh, he says, may I speak to the crowd? And so the commander allows Paul to speak to the crowd. So Paul is, is being carried up the steps. So he's up above the crowd. He was already on his way to the barracks and they're following them. And he's up on the steps addressing the large crowd of Jewish men gathered below him. And it says, the scripture says, when it became silent, when it became quiet, Paul began to speak to them in their own language, in the Hebrew language. <clears throat> and the crowd, uh, he quickly gained their attention and he begins to testify of his conversion and begins to explain that God had sent him to the Gentiles. Now let's pick up the story now in Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 17. So Paul, here in verse 17, is toward the end of his testimony here. 
And it says, now it happened when, Paul is saying this, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. This is shortly after his conversion. And saw, and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, this is the Lord Jesus, says to Paul, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him, the Jews listened to Paul until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And the crowd violently erupts, they get Paul and they carry him away, and the Romans have to violently intercede and rescue Paul so that Paul is not killed by the mob. So this episode in Paul's life is recorded here. We're studying the book of Acts. We're going through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and so Luke writes the book of Acts as a record of the Acts of the Apostles. Right now, we're looking at the Apostle Paul. And so this episode in Paul's life can teach us much today because we face the same type of hostility in our own culture today as it was for Paul then, much is similar for us today. Now, I know what some of you might be saying. So, well, they're not, they're not killing us. Not yet. And, and, you know, when I say that to some people, sometimes they think, oh, Pastor Jeff, you're just being over the top. That's just a little, that's a little dramatic. I'm like, well... You know, what about our brothers and sisters in China? What about our brothers and sisters in Nigeria? Uh, Gitana's in Ethiopia right now, and they have people being killed on a regular basis simply because they're Christians. You say, but that's Ethiopia, that's Nigeria, that's Pakistan, that's Saudi Arabia, that's China. We could keep listing countries. How many do you want me to list? It's all those countries, but it's not America, right? And again, I would say not yet. Opposition comes from without, but it also comes from within. So I want to look at this. I want to look at Paul's life, and I want to look at this episode in Paul's life, and I want to look at it from our point of view today. Because this is why God has recorded it for us. This is why God inspired Luke to write these things and record these things. Because God knew that his church 2,000 years later would need to know this. Because his church 2,000 years later was going to meet the same type of opposition. Now don't think that we've had a 2,000 year span where there's not been any opposition. You do realize that since Paul experienced this mob in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, men and women who profess faith in Christ have been killed consistently throughout human history. And the reason this seems so strange to us here in America is because we've lived in a nation that has benefited from the gospel to such a degree that we can't even imagine this type of hostility in the nation that we live in. But there are things happening right now that should be very real warning signs for us that we should pay attention to. They might seem innocent to some. They might just seem the way it is to others. But for those in the church who are paying attention, who have eyes to see and ears to hear and can discern the signs of the times that we're living in, they should be very real red flags, warnings to us. We're, we're in the midst of one of these things with our very own city 
right now. I'm not prepared to tell you everything that's happening, but I'm telling you there are things happening, and I'm having dialogues with, with local pastors who are saying things like, we just need to go along to get along. Or, well, it's the government, and we need to obey their regulations and their rules. And I'm like, okay, this is the church. This is the church. These are men who profess to believe the Bible, and I do believe they do believe the Bible. But they don't see certain things as a big enough threat. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering when did the people of Germany realize that the Nazis were a big enough threat that they decided to do something? You know when it was? When it was too late. When it was too late for millions and millions and millions of Jews and other citizens of their nation. So here in America, when do we want to realize that things are happening that we better pay attention to? And if we think it cannot happen here, we are very deeply deceived. Or we're like those that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 who just want to suppress the truth in unrighteousness because the truth is too unpleasant for us. Sometimes our greatest opposition does not come from without, but from within. Just as we see in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, it was not only the Gentiles, but the Jews who created problems. The Jews, as much as any, if not more, were hostile to Paul and the message of the gospel of Christ. Even from those that were in the church, Paul's warning to the elders at Ephesus were, they will rise up from among your ranks. Those who profess to be the church, those who profess to be followers of Christ are going to come like savage wolves to devour the flock. And we can't think that's unique to Paul in the world 2,000 years ago. It's happening right now all around us. We just can't discern it very often because there are wolves in sheep's clothing and they look like sheep, but their actions and their words actually should tell us otherwise. In Jerusalem, Paul was gladly received by the brethren, but many of the Jews knew him from Asia, and they were ready to kill Paul because of the gospel. It was actually the Romans, believe it or not, who saved Paul's life from the Jews. Paul's experience then informs us that even within the professing church today, there are those who oppose the truth and embrace the lie. At some point, sooner or later, we will either stand for truth or we will fall for the lie. We must not be surprised by this reality, just as Paul wasn't surprised about it in his day. Paul did not allow opposition from anyone to stop him from preaching the gospel of Christ. God calls his servants to be faithful, and faithfulness requires courage. It does. When God sent 12 spies into the land of promise for 40 days, only two came back with a good report. So we should never be surprised when the majority of God's people come up with a bad report. We should never be surprised when much of the church is standing there going, you guys are just need to back down. You guys just need to, 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 to be quiet. It was only two out of the 12 who came back with a good report. What was the good report? Yes, there are giants in the land. Yes, the cities are big and the strong and the walls seem impossible to overcome. But guess what, guys? Our God is bigger. Bigger than giants, bigger than cities. Those 10 let fear get the best of them. 10 did not testify in faith based on God's word. Instead, they testified in fear based on their sight. This is why we are commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. What we can see may be factual. We're not living in denial. But God often calls us to walk by faith in spite of the facts. You, you, do you understand the difference, don't you? The doctor says you have cancer. That might be a fact. But God is bigger. So do we pray for God to heal us? Yes, we do. We don't deny the facts, but we look to one greater than the facts. And if the greater one says it's your time to go home, then you're going to go home, and that's okay. 
But we don't give up the fight just because of the facts. What we can see may be factual, but God calls us to walk by faith in spite of the facts. Faith does not deny facts. Faith acknowledges God who is the truth that is above all, even the facts. Like the spies in Canaan, the fact may be strong giants, strong cities. But do we see God in truth as bigger and stronger? Do we believe his word? Two spies did. Ten spies did not. That's, that's, a, that's a ratio that you can pretty much take to the bank. You hear this all the time in churches. It doesn't matter how big the church is. It doesn't matter how small the church is. You got 10 to 20% of the people that do most of the work. It's, it's like the 20-80 the ratio. That, that's, just, that's just the way it is very often. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it should be. But we shouldn't be surprised when 12 spies go in and only two come back with a good report. And the rest are giving place to their fear and their doubt and their unbelief. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We're living in a day and a time when walking by sight will surely fail us. It will. Even if we think it won't. Even if it looks like it's working for a while it's, it's, it's going to fail. If we do not learn to walk by faith, we will fall in fear. If we do not learn to trust in the power of the gospel, we will be left with the failed and empty weakness of worldly wisdom. And the ash heap of history is littered with that. Just as the Jews who had assembled in Jerusalem had no tolerance for Paul... And the gospel ministry to the Gentiles, the culture today, inside and outside much of the church, has no tolerance for those committed to the truth of God's word and the ministry of the gospel of Christ to the world. Like Paul, we have a choice. Faithfully and courageously obey Christ and walk into danger by faith or pretend we obey Christ and walk another way in fear. Or worse, we appease the opposers and the oppressors. You students of history, of modern history, ought to know as well as anyone what appeasement does. I've said this often. My father fought in World War II. World War II was a product of appeasement. Neville Chamberlain, the famous prime minister, not famous for his success, but famous for his failure famously went and met with Adolf Hitler and famously gave Hitler what Hitler wanted and came back saying, we have peace, we have peace. And we should be reminded of what the Bible says. They'll say, peace, peace, but there will be no peace. And that's exactly what happened. In 1939, when Hitler and his army stormed in and took over the rest of Poland and just kept rolling right on all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And the only reason he didn't take Britain was because there was an English channel between him. Had he could have rolled right into England, he would have done it, and the world as we know it would be different today. That's what appeasement got us. As we have seen through human history, through our own modern history, appeasement often leads to greater tragedy than it seeks to avoid. When the church compromises the gospel for the sake of appeasing or pleasing the world, we have already tragically lost the battle. We are tempted to walk by sight and not by faith because it can appear that standing firm in the gospel is more costly than the appeasement. Well, you know, we don't want to turn them against us. You know, we don't want to make them think that we're mean well, you know, if we say this too loud and if we're too, too uh, forceful, if we're too unbending, then, then you know, we're just going to turn them against us. I got news for you. They're already against us. Read Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek after God. You can read Romans chapter 3, and we should never, ever, ever be worried about turning anyone against God because they're already against God. And the only hope they have is that someone would have the courage to stand up and tell the truth because only the truth can set men free. 
And if the church isn't going to tell the truth, then who's going to tell it? And I submit to you, no one will. What we may escape, the generations coming after us will not. Standing firm in the gospel may indeed cost us many in many ways, but the cost for not standing is far greater and far, far more tragic. That's what's going to cost the generations coming after us. What we endure now will produce far more in the future than we may see now. And that's what we have to believe. Because this is what God tells us. This is what history tells us. History, his story. How has the church made it to today when they killed them like flies through centuries of history, through long, the Romans killed Christians so fast, they crucified so many of them, they ran out of trees. They ran out of wood to nail them to. We don't, we don't because we don't like history, because we don't read history, we don't understand what happened at the siege of Jerusalem. We don't understand what Nero did. He, he, he lit the whole, both sides of the highway he made torches out of Christians that he crucified and put in the ground. And he turned Christians into streetlights. It's a horrible thing to think about. But that's history. They couldn't kill him fast enough. But here we are today. Because one saint said, one of the early church fathers said that the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of revival. And history bears that out. Revival rarely comes in times of ease, in times of blessing. When men take their ease and men let their guard down, that's usually not when revival comes. That, at least not in the history of, our, of the church. Revival usually comes, reformation usually comes when it's reached a point, a breaking point, something's got to be done. Do you know how many people they burned at the stake before the reformation? Men who just simply wanted to translate the Bible into a common language. Men like Peter Brunus, Peter Waldorf, Peter Waldo, John Huss, who were burned at the stake because they just wanted to translate the Bible so the people could read it. See, it wasn't just the Romans or the pagans, the people who burned Huss and Waldo and Brunus, those were Christians. That was the church. Oppositions, not just from outside, it's also from within. When we walk by sight, we see the immediate cost we seek to avoid. And what we do not see are the long-term costs of our unbelief. We are seeing, we are living right now the long-term cost of America's unbelief. Her long march to unbelief. We're beginning to eat the fruit of it right now. And we don't know what to think about it. And we want to just stick our head in the sand and pretend like it's going to go away. But I will promise you this. It's not only not going to go away. It's going to get worse if the church doesn't pull her head out of the sand and stand up straight and do something. And I'm not a prophet. I'm just telling you. Because this is what history has taught us. We also don't see the long-term fruit of our obedience today that will be enjoyed in the future. We have a reason to walk by faith, to obey. We must know that whatever we may gain today through compromising the gospel will produce tragic results in the future. We must be willing to endure the cost of faithfulness today so that spiritual dividends will be paid for the coming generations. I hear people ask this question all the time. I hear people 
my age and older say this all the time. I'm not worried about me, but I wonder about my grandkids. Well, I worry about, I wonder about my grandkids too. I worry about my kids. I worry about all of us. As if this is going to be some slow process, like Hezekiah said, well, good for me. It's not going to come in my day. But guess what? The Babylonians came. And we might be like Hezekiah and say, well, good for us. It's not going to come in our day. But we might be fooled. Because it could come in our day. Because look what's happened just in the few short years that have just, just passed. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. This command that we walk by faith and not by sight is so that we can see not just the short-term success, but the long-term fruit that God wants to bring. The long-term cost of fearful compromise are always greater and more tragic than we can see in the short-term and the long-term fruit produced by, produced by courageous faithfulness is always greater than what we may see today. This is why God commands his children to walk by faith and not by sight. This is what Paul was doing as he journeyed to Jerusalem, being warned every step of the way what was going to happen to him, but he kept walking by faith. This is what he was doing as he faced that hostile mob. Paul was walking by faith. He was paying the cost of faithfulness today so that the long-term spiritual fruit would be enjoyed tomorrow. And I submit to you that we are eating the fruit of Paul's faithfulness today. What he endured 2,000 years ago, we're still eating the fruit of it today. And don't think that just because your name's not written in Scripture somewhere, that your faithfulness will not contribute to fruit generations from now, because it will, if you will be faithful. We're called to live and to walk the same way, by faith and not by sight. We're to trust God for today and tomorrow and beyond. And walking by faith is not ignoring the culture, it's engaging it. In 2018, we went to a conference entitled Enraging the Culture. The word enrage was obviously on purpose. Not because we are to go out seeking ways to enrage the culture. Because we don't have to seek those ways. But when we live faithful, obedient lives in the gospel, the culture is going to be enraged and we need to just accept that. You don't have to go looking for the fight. The fight's here. Question is, are we going to stand up and, and are we going to engage? Or are we going to retreat and run away? And if you stand up to engage the culture with the truth, they will be enraged at you. They just, they will. If you think you're going to be nicer, more loving than Jesus, the, that's how they like to describe Jesus. They like to point fingers at Bible-believing Christians and say, well, you just don't love like Jesus loved. You just need to be nice like Jesus was nice. And I always laugh at that. I'm thinking, no, you don't want me to be nice like Jesus was nice. Because you obviously don't read your Bible because you don't even know who Jesus is. Because if you would have been a Pharisee or a scribe or a religious leader in Jesus' day, you would have thought Jesus was anything but nice. In fact, he was so mean, he was so offensive, he was so uncooperative that the only thing left to do with this guy is kill him. And that's exactly what they did. And if we have to lie to kill him, we'll lie to kill him. If we have to bribe people to get him killed, we'll bribe people to get him killed. We'll do whatever it takes to get rid of this guy. And that's what they did with Jesus. Now, little did they know that was the plan of God all along. But just because it was the plan of God, it did not absolve them of their guilt. It didn't. And Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the unrepentant heart of those Jews resulted in the judgment that came upon that city in 70 AD. And it was not a pretty sight. You can read the history for yourselves. It's, it's brutal. It's graphic what happened there. 
We must know that in the current culture in our nation, when we walk in obedience to Christ, when we believe the Bible is God's truth, when we live accordingly, we will enrage the culture without trying. Engaging the culture is nothing more than meeting life head on with the truth. You do it wherever you are, whatever you're doing. It is not compromising. It's not wilting under the pressure when the world applies the heat. It is not running from the battle. In fact, it is running into the battle. Not because we want to fight, but because the battle has real consequences that demand our engagement. What parent would not fight for their children What grandparent would not fight for their grandkids? Yet I see parents and grandparents everywhere who are unwilling to fight. And they're unwilling to fight because they don't discern the battle. And the Bible calls us as children of God, as followers of Christ, to discern the battle that we're in, to discern the warfare that's being conducted against us. Paul had to face the assembly he knew would be hostile to him. He had been warned repeatedly of what would happen when he went to Jerusalem. He still went. Jesus has commanded us to go and to make disciples. He promised it would involve tribulation. He promised danger, even death to those who would go. He tells us, though, to be of good cheer in the face of it all. Why? Because he has overcome the world. Not because bad things won't happen. Not because hard things won't happen. Not because life's going to be easy for the believer. No, just the opposite. He tells us to be a good cheer in the face of it all because he's not only just overcome the world, but he has overcome death. This is why Jesus said, don't fear death. I've conquered it. And in me, you conquer it. What do we have to fear? Losing our life, losing our livelihood, losing our way of life. There are people all over the world, Christians all over the world that have lost all of those things, still losing them today, even as we speak. We could lose all of those things, perhaps. But have you ever considered that perhaps we will not? We don't have to be pessimists. I like, personally, to be optimistic. I like to believe that if we obey God and walk as God commands us to walk, good things will happen. Don't give up the battle before you start fighting. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be called Americans if we'd have done that. Do you know what the odds were of us defeating Britain, the greatest power on earth, in 1776? The odds were, if, if there would have been a Vegas and a betting line back in 1776, let me just put it this way, it would have been a fraction of a percentage of anyone that would have given the American colonies a chance to beat the British. It was a statistical impossibility. But here we are, Americans. Maybe, maybe we won't lose all of those things. In fact, we may end up gaining far more than we could ever lose. We may reap such reward here and in eternity that whatever I may have thought the cost was, it really is nothing but gain. This is walking by faith, trusting that no matter what we see, God has something I cannot see. And what God has is always better than what we can see. But I... The things I can't see but I know are true. This is what faith is. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The things we know are true. His word declares it. And I'm commanded to trust it. Jesus gave himself up for us. That we would walk by faith. And live in his power. And we come to this table every week. To proclaim that truth. The body that he gave up for us. The blood that he poured out for us. As daunting as you might think the task is before us in our culture. I promise you it is nothing compared to the sin that we faced. Sin is the most daunting obstacle we have ever faced. Bar none. 
And there was no way for us to overcome the obstacle of sin. This is why Jesus came to this earth. This is why Jesus carried his cross. This is why Jesus was nailed to that cross and clung to that cross out of love for his people so that his shed blood would take away our sin forever and that we would forever be accepted in the Father. This is what we celebrate every week. The hard part's already been done. The heavy lifting, Jesus has done it. We're just now called to be faithful and to trust him to work through our faithfulness, and he will. So Christian, welcome to the table. Welcome to Jesus. Trust him. If you've never trusted, trust him. Trust him now. And come to this table and celebrate his body and his blood that's been given up for us. We cannot lose. You need to believe that. You need to know that. And it's time. It's time for the church to engage, to stand up, and to fight. Not in our power, not in our might, but in the power of the Lord and in his might. Amen? Come to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. Jesus is king. Don't let the world convince you otherwise. We have a power greater than anything this world could ever generate or conjure up. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in each and every one that belongs to Christ. Walk by faith. Walk in the spirit. Walk in his power and see the salvation of God. It is time for the church to humble herself in obedience before God. If we will, he has promised that he will raise us up in power and he will heal our land. It is time for the church to rejoice that God has put us here for such a time as this. And that if we will be faithful, he has guaranteed us victory no matter what. We have every reason to be joyfully faithful to our calling. Our Lord has conquered death and all of his enemies. Be hopeful. Be joyful. Be courageous. For Jesus is king. Amen. Amen.